Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm super happy today to welcome Stefan von Inhoff, the co-founder and CEO of Alts.co. Now, there are a million sites about stocks, but Alts is about the investment options that aren't discussed as much because Alts is an alternative investing community and fund with 50,000 members. They cover all types of alternative assets, which, of course, we at New Street are very interested in. And I'm excited to hear about Stefan, his journey, what they're doing, and learning more about alternative assets. So welcome, Stefan. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. Great to be here, man. Awesome. Now, maybe for someone that has no idea what Alts is or your background here, could you just maybe break down simply what do you do at Alts? How did it come together? And then what's your background before starting this company? Sure. So the way it came together was this was a lockdown baby. I was living in Melbourne, Australia uh, during the COVID lockdown. Basically, nothing better to do for four straight months. We had a pretty strict lockdown, you may have heard. <laughs> for about four straight months, nothing better to do on the weekends except write. And, you know, I love writing. I've always loved writing. They would say, write what you know about. And at the time, I was the head of product at a company called Flippa.com, which is a marketplace for buying and selling websites, micro SaaS, micro private equity companies. And so I was just kind of immersed in that world already. And so I started writing about that world and I began on a Substack called Alternative Assets. It was um, the Alternative Assets newsletter on Substack. And it was basically like every week I would cover like a new kind of like theme, right? It mostly centered at the time around website investing and digital assets and that kind of stuff. But it quickly formed into something bigger when I realized that there was so much happening in the world of alternative investing. You know, we always at Flippa, we always saw websites as being an alternative investment. And that was something we always ran with, like, you know, it's an alternative to equities, right? But there's just so much other stuff happening around this time. It's just a groundswell of new opportunities fueled by technology and loosened regulations and crypto. And so it just made sense to try to start to kind of cover all of it, you know? When you talked about like diving into alternative assets and just writing about it, was this from like a a very sort of like regimented investment lens. Like, okay, I'm thinking that this is how I'd predict something to be a worthwhile or not so worthwhile investment. Was it more just like an observation on what's it like to invest in websites and micro PE and alternative assets in general? It's a great question because it was both. So it was um, basically, I tried to kind of like walk that tightrope balance between general broad themes and then also like deal analysis because that's what I was doing at Flippa. I was analyzing deals. Long story short, I actually started Flippa's due diligence program, right? So I was already like analyzing deals for a living, basically. And so I realized you, that you could apply those same principles to all sorts of alternative investments, right? So yeah, it was both. It was covering the broad kind of landscape and what was happening, but it was also absolutely diving into specific micro IPOs and deals that we saw. And that later became a big part of our, our paid newsletter, uh, which we can get into later. But um, yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. So, okay. So then the next part is the spirals and snowballs. Is that what happened after that? What happened was interesting. So about four months in, there was another gentleman with a newsletter that was like really similar to mine. So his name was Wyatt and Wyatt had a Substack, and he was writing about alternative investing, but he was coming at it from a different angle, right? So he was coming at it through the lens of what was happening on like fractional platforms and sports cards and memorabilia and comic books and he has like a finance background. And so we were kind of doing similar like deal analysis. And long story short, I was a fan of him. He was a fan of me. We'd never met in person. But I basically just rang him up one day and I was like, hey, man, like, let's just join forces. I don't really want to compete with you. 
<laughs> we're basically doing this similar and you know i think it'd be good to you know have a co-founder and um so yeah we basically started working together and we've been working together ever since that was about 18 months ago and was this created as a like a paid newsletter business from the day one was it more setting up as a community was there like a business model in mind from like the beginning there's one thing for sure that we always wanted to do and that's create a fund Right. Because like both of us in both of our newsletters, because we were doing deals and we were doing deal analysis, rather, we would have people in our community that are like, look, I get your newsletters. I don't read every single one. I don't have time, but like, they're awesome. I get it. You're smart. I know, you know what you're talking about. I trust you. Like, can you guys just spin up like a vehicle for me to just passively invest in like whatever you see is the best out there? And we're like, yes, you can, but not quite yet because it's going to take a little bit of cash to bring something like that to life that's when we decided to raise money. So we raised 1.5 million last October. And within about five, six months, we brought our first investment fund to life, which we can get into later if you'd like. But yeah, I mean, so from the beginning, you know, the business models shifted a little bit, we always knew a fund was going to be part of it. It's really exciting, because it seems like you and Wyatt are both catching on to both like a combination of your personal interests and a sort of zeitgeist of the moment, which it's kind of partially what inspired New Street as well, where we saw, you know, during COVID, People were getting into things that partially motivated by COVID, partially motivated by just like the way that the world's been evolving into like cultural assets, buying things like, you know, sneakers or all these fractional yeah, websites. Passion assets. Like exactly. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Like wine, NFTs, et cetera, which you know, obviously dive into every single one of those. I'm sure each, each of those warrant a separate podcast too. But I love how there it seems to be the kind of parallels between your journey and ours in a way. And okay, so you and Wyatt got together. And when I think about what you and the company offers right now, it's such a wide range of alternative assets. And the term alternative assets, I don't think it's for particularly retail investors or just the person on the street. It's not always obvious what that exactly means. So how did you... <laughs> That's because it has right? no definition. Exactly. <laughs> you ask right? 10 different yeah. people, you get 10, 10 different answers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the metaverse, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So... How did you and Wyatt say, okay, step one, we, let's get together. And then how did you decide to expand and choose like, okay, let's just talk about all this different stuff. Or was it focused? Did you like sequentially roll out? One of the first conversations we had was like, do we go tall or do we go wide? Like, do we build this company vertical specific or do we go wide? And I just, you know, every business book tells you not to go wide, like to focus and to like, and I just, I went with my gut and I'm just like, I want to go as wide as possible. Like at least from a coverage standpoint, at least from a media standpoint, like the actual fund is not going to be like, I mean, we're not going to invest in like Hot Wheels and like, you know, Lego sets for obvious reasons. But at the same time, from a content standpoint, from what we research, from the markets we look at, I just wanted to go as wide as possible and learn about everything there is to learn about all these different collectibles markets, new markets coming up. And that's exactly what we've done. So we, there are definitely like alternative investment asset classes that we focus on and that are more important than others. There's a good dozen that are like core. Within that, there's a good probably like seven or eight that are really core. Even that's a lot, but that's still like a pretty kind of core, you know. But I mean, we'll cover everything. I mean, there's so much to cover. There's so much happening in the world. I mean, just last week, I had, a, I had a great time really getting into the weeds on, I don't know if you saw, we did an issue on like Islamic finance. And like, that's like not a lot of people talking about that. By the way, there's what, two and a half billion Muslims in the world. And they have a whole separate rule about finance. Like they don't allow interest. 
they don't, I mean, that's incredible. And like, there's what, two apps covering that? I mean, there's so much opportunity with this stuff. And like, that's just one topic. And so what I love most about what we do is, is how wide we go. To me, that's what we do better than anyone else. And it's just so special to me. Totally, totally agree. And I think from from my personal perspective, I'm interested in a lot of different things. So I could see myself reading articles about Islamic finance just as much as learning about how to invest in Hot Wheels, just as much as learning about NFTs and things like that. So today, so from the beginning, you know, you and White got together and you've built this company over the past couple of years. Now, today for someone who hit, goes to Alts.co, what is the exact offering? Because it seems to me like there's a handful of like paid newsletters. There's some like free content as well. There's also like some community elements. Uh, we'll put aside this fun for a second. There's like a Discord. What does someone come and experience when it comes to the totality of what Alts offers them if they were just joining today for the first time? So, I mean, our whole thing is that we do the hard work and the homework that no one else wants to do in terms of deal analysis, right? Now, you, you can get, there's so many different alternative investment opportunities that we see that everyone can see. So our goal is to like, you know, bring the good ones to you, analyze the heck out of them, and basically give our recommendation on what we would do in the, with this micro IPO or with this opportunity. The really good stuff, you know, we're going to end up like, Extra researching extra hard for our own fund. That's basically the core of what it is. So it's like, if you're an alpha seeking kind of like investor who's really looking for an edge, you read our content, you take our recommendations, and you apply that to your own investing. If you're someone on the other hand, who's a little bit more passive, and is just kind of like, you know, looking to understand a little bit, but wants someone else to manage their money. That's what our Alts One fund is for. So we're kind of trying to cover both, right? The active and the passive investment community. Okay, got it. Now, when I think also about how you've been able to scale this, so do you have like a team of, of analysts, more like freelancers, is it more like, like like a seeking alpha kind of model? Or how do you, I guess, resource and bring the expertise that scales beyond just you and Wyatt? We definitely have a team of analysts and researchers. There's no way we'll ever be experts in every single category. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, like, we don't pretend to be like, there's no way you could ever do that. Right. So we study markets. We, there's specific markets that I'm, I know very well and why it knows very well for sure. But at the same time, like there's no way that scales. So yeah, we've brought in real estate experts, artwork experts. I mean, it's tough to call anyone an NFT expert when the market's three years old, but like, you know, you do the best you can crypto. There's definitely experts in there, you know, so we work with experts. We work with people who, they know their stuff, but they don't act like they know their stuff, especially when it comes to like crypto and NFTs. Like there is so much confusion in these markets, right? And like just simplifying this stuff for people is like a big part of what we do. Really simplifying all markets for everyone, but especially crypto and NFTs. I mean, it's just, I don't know how you guys feel, but like even to this day, like this concepts, like I barely understand. And like, this is like, I'm not afraid to say it. I mean, they're, this is complex stuff. Some of the stuff is really, really complex. And the idea that the average person is just going to understand this, like, there's no way. Like, this is like part, one of the gripes people have about like Web3 and everything, right? So we try to simplify these worlds and these markets for everyone. I hope we do a good job. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Like the Web3 part, I feel like there's a huge part of like the emperor has no clothes with Web3 discussions <laughs> where you're talking to people. You know what I mean? Like quickly, people are deep oh, into it. yeah. And like using words and terms where you feel you're made to feel dumb if you don't understand what they're saying. But well, they really been, dive. They've been called out lately. That I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. there's been some. I'm not going to name names because I respect both of the people. But you know exactly who I'm talking about. And 
it's kind of embarrassing because it's not look if i was put on the spot i'd probably fail too but i'm not, i also don't have an agenda i'm not trying to be this like web3 like you know look i do think that generally speaking i'm so glad this stuff exists because it's fascinating and i like anything that's fascinating do i think the uh, hype outweighs the use cases at this point yes but at the same time there are specific use cases within Web3 that I am extremely excited about. One of them is the intersection of music and NFTs. And again, we can get into that later if you'd like, but that is definitely a problem worth solving. Uh, another one is film, but definitely music for sure. I feel like we could riff on like pretty much all these markets and topics, but yeah, I'll, I'm making placeholders and notes for, okay, music, film, let's talk about that in a second. But yeah, just to, to close off on that point about education, I think totally on the same page that it's very important. And particularly right now when we're entering, I guess, like a bear market and the hype has died down. To me, this is like the best time to build content, to build reputation, to build trust, to build tools and ways to teach people. Because I think the worst parts of the hype have been crowded out. And I think this is what's needed right yeah. now. So love that we're kind yeah. of on the same of that. No, okay. Now I'm interested to hear like how where you and Wyatt come from in terms of like your interests and passions. You know, usually when I talk to people about what they're doing with their company, their startup, their pursuit, there's usually, not all the time, but there's usually some sort of interest that comes from years ago. So when I think about things like alternative assets, a lot of these things are based, at least from what we've seen, on passion more than just buying stocks. So if I'm buying shares of Apple or Tesla or IBM, it's not because I'm, I have this deep love of IBM. I'm, of course, Apple has kind of a cult following, but if I'm buying IBM shares, it's not because I have this deep love of IBM from my childhood. Now, if I'm buying Jordans or if I'm buying Pokemon cards or if I'm buying sealed cases of Super Mario Brothers, that might be because when I was like eight years old, I was obsessed with Pokemon. And to me, the investment is just as much passion driven as it is financially driven. Now, when I think about what you and Wyatt have, how you and Wyatt have come together, I'm just curious to know, like, I mean, I don't know what Wyatt's background is, but going back to your prior to Flippa, even, have you always had a passion for certain things like in maybe the collectible space or in art or in, in music, vinyl records, things like that? Funny you mentioned, because that is, oh, 100%. Yeah. So I'm a big vinyl collector. I mean, it gets a lot bigger than me, that's for sure. But I'm building up a really nice collection. I love vinyl. I I think it sounds better. I think it has beautiful artwork inside. I love the feel of putting a record on and playing it. I'm a huge music fan. I'm a musician. I have a very eclectic collection of vinyl records. I'm always picking up more. I think vinyl, and that's just from a personal passion standpoint. From an investment standpoint, vinyl's up. It's going up. It's I know it's starting from so low, but it is literally growing really fast. People are getting back into it. I'm a big music fan. I'm not necessarily a vinyl collector, but I'm a definite above average fan of music and particularly music history and business as well. Now, I have heard just like kind of anecdotally, like seeing a couple of charts someone posted on Twitter or LinkedIn, like, oh, vinyl sales are going up. That's the extent of my knowledge. Now, how would you break down what has been happening, like specifically, and you don't have to provide like data or anything, but like what's been happening the last years with vinyl? What do you think is the reason behind that? And what do you see as like the future of vinyl as like as an investment option? Great questions. I think, like so many things, I think COVID kicked vinyl into high gear, both as a collection and a hobby, and as just a thing to do while you're stuck at home, you know, sitting around. I think uh, that was definitely benefited from COVID for sure. But I actually think vinyl's rising. If you look at the data, it actually started before COVID. It started going up a few years before. 
I think a lot of it is there's there's a lot of like new artists that are starting to get into it and just like releasing like really like seriously releasing records and, and putting a lot of effort into the artwork and the disc and just the experience. I think that the fact that Spotify, you don't really own your music when you're streaming it, right? I think that's a big thing for people. I think actually physically, like if you were to sell your Spotify catalog, how could you? Oh, you couldn't. You know what I mean? Like you're just renting it. You're basically renting it from Spotify, which is fine. Spotify is one of the greatest inventions of all time. I mean, I love Spotify, truly. But to me, the other thing is just the quality of the sound. I mean, you cannot beat it. CDs were almost as good as vinyl, but they weren't quite but streaming is way worse. I mean, compression and like, I mean, it's not even close. And I mean, you put on a record and you hear the cracks and the popples and the, pop, and it's just like, oh, it's like you forgot how good music could sound. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I think vinyl is fantastic. And then as far as like from an investment standpoint, oh, it definitely holds its value. Have you been to a record store lately? Vinyl isn't like cheap, man. Like, like records are 40 to 60 bucks a pop like i mean yeah there's the bargain bin and you can always go on discogs and ebay and find lot bulk deals but man i mean vinyls holds up its value extremely well like it always will it doesn't degrade like it gets scratched but it does if you have a vinyl record that'll never not be a vinyl record it'll always play You, you know what i mean so i mean it's a fantastic collectible absolutely one of my favorites are factors involved there let's say like rarity and vintage because so, like take like a baseball card for example right a baseball card from like 1958 there's only like 10 in existence right now based on what like psa data says or things like that and because it's 1958 versus cards that are produced 2019 there are fewer of them and there's like a sort of like value that comes from the time as well for vinyl is it the same is it like i know the oldest vinyl records that have been preserved from like I don't know, Muddy Waters or something like that, or the Beatles, are those the ones that are increasing in value, just like how a pair of Air Jordans preserved from 1989 would be worth more than a pair that just came out last year, putting aside a lot of nuances there. Is it like vintage and rarity, like some of the elements when it comes to vinyl? A lot of parallels with some other collectible markets, a lot of things that are totally different. So what's similar is, you know, obviously rarity is, is huge, right? So limited edition stuff, special edition stuff is big. With vinyl, it's all about the pressing. The first pressing is what you look for. It's what collectors look for. Because there's a million reissues with records. So reissues just aren't worth, like, I mean, they're great. They'll still hold their value. But it's not like, you're not going to find any, like, gem, like, $500, $1,000, like, records that are reissues. They're just Collectors look for the original. So the lower the number, generally, the better, right? So each record has a pressing number. Like, it has an actual, you know, and so the lower that number, the, the better. With records, they're meant to be listened to. They're not meant to sit on a shelf like a baseball card and looked at and flipped over and looked at the back. I mean, it's not like this is active collectibles, right? So the condition doesn't matter as much with vinyl records. Now, don't get me wrong. It still matters. But there's no vinyl grading service that's like, well, there are somewhat, but there's no like dedicated vinyl grading service. By the way, it's a huge opportunity and someone should do it. There actually, as of today, there's no real company doing vinyl grading. And again, I don't think it really is what collectors want because collectors listen so they can uh, collect so they can listen. Like they're not looking to just put it on the shelf and like show it off. Like it's not like a baseball card or something like that, right? So it's like the condition doesn't quite matter as much. The final thing I'll say is this: like the other thing is um, provenance, right? So if you know that a record was owned by someone or was signed by someone, like that is like huge. So like just three weeks ago, we were able to pick up a original pressing of the Beatles' White Album that rumor has it was owned by john lennon because it has number two on it like 
Usually the number on a record is like in the tens of thousands. This has number two, zero, 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 two. And the rumor has it was owned by John Lennon. We were able to pick this up at, at Julian's auctions for about $55,000. So that's part of the Alts One Fund. So that, that's the most expensive record I own. I don't personally own it. The fund owns it. But that's, my, that's the one I'm most proud of. <laughs> that's fascinating because it's also like, not to say John Lennon didn't own that, but like the story behind it helps influence the value of it of a given item as well. So maybe John Lennon did own it, maybe he didn't, but that will be a factor in the auction, right? Well, we're trying to, even if he didn't, it's still valuable because it's a sec, it's a number two press. But like, we're trying to actually, it's funny because we're working with it. This is very difficult. We're not getting anywhere, but we're at least trying to see if we can get some proof that he did own it somehow and to get that proof authenticated because what that would do is take the value of that asset up to close to a million dollars. I mean, and so it'll take a lot of work and probably will fail, but this is the kind of stuff, this is how we can improve the assets value even more. Either way, in 10 years, it's going to be worth more than 50 grand. I mean, the Beatles are timeless, like absolutely timeless. Yeah. If you find out that John Lennon did own it, maybe like mint that on the blockchain somewhere, some sort of like some record that there you people go. can say. You can <laughs> understand. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense because it's like, um, I don't know if you've seen like all these hedge funds acquiring like back catalogs of people like Bob Dylan and stuff, where if you think about oh, yeah. right, your ability to further monetize and exploit music rights moving forward, which also gets to the topic of NFTs, which I want to talk about with you in a sec. I wouldn't use the word exploit when dealing with a bit of a sensitive. But... Yeah, but that is the industry term. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying yeah. I, I love it, but I, like, I remember talking to people and like music lawyers, like, anyway. No, no, it's a great point. That this is what a lot of people don't like about the music industry, and why I think there's such a great opportunity with music and NFTs. That said, music rights, even today, like aside from crypto and NFTs, like music rights are a fantastic asset class as well. Now, the funds you named, right? So there's a big one called Hypnosis. Hypnosis is amazingly, like you probably know about it. Most people couldn't tell you what it is. Hypnosis is was founded by uh, Nile Rogers, right? So like the guy is just absolutely, they're buying up everything, but it's all on the high end. And what's fascinating is there's really no activity on the low end. So this is why our fund is starting to look very closely at music rights. Now we haven't made any music rights purchases yet. They are very involved. I'm doing my homework. I mean, every couple of weeks I have a new meeting with someone in the industry. I mean, it's going to take a lot of work to secure a low end music rights, but man, like there's already marketplaces. As you guys probably know, you can go and you can buy deals, right? Royalty exchange, song vest those aren't necessarily the best deals that are on there. And we don't really know those markets well enough to do our homework to the degree where we feel confident, like recommending or not recommending. But the point is the marketplaces are starting up. They're starting to get serious traction. And there's a lot happening with music rights as well. That's a fantastic alternative investment class. Oh, totally. I mean, I think we got to dive deeper into music here. Because I think also like if you think about the idea of NFTs as sort of a digital record and something that could be like, like financialized to track the value of something. Let's say, take a step back, look at music rights, right? If someone's going to the high end buying Bruce Springsteen music rights, you want to find like, let's say an undervalued version of that. Maybe it's some rapper who released albums in 2015. He or she's not huge, but you predict because of some sort of modeling or gut intuition or whatever, that he or she will be the biggest rapper in the world 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And not just that, but 50 years from now, that person will be like the Beatles. So they're, Acquiring their music rights will be like an ongoing investment that should be a great one over the next, not just five years, but like 50 years. Now, how would you track that, right? There's, you have to make an assumption. There's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's tricky. So there's two ways to play it. I've thought a lot about this. I mean, like on the, 
I was talking to a, a guy this morning who's, who's in the industry, and, and I kind of brought the same thing up. It's kind of kind of funny you bring it up, but he was basically saying that yes, that that is true, but it's riskier. And also sure. that artists are much less willing to sell when they're younger because they have so much more of their life ahead of them. Like when you're 25, it's like the future's so bright and rosy and it could go anywhere. So why would you sell what you've created when you're so young? What you really want to look for, he was saying, is the folks that are actually coming towards middle age or, or even towards the end of their life. Because now they have a history of sales, a history of uh, revenue. So you don't really necessarily want to find someone who's going to blow up. You want to find someone who's been way like under the radar, but stable for the past 15 years, right? And then like who, someone who's just, you know, was easing into their 60s with a royalty for a song they wrote in the 60s, and they make 25 grand a year for it, from it. And it's not a ton of money, but it was like a hit, and they had partial rights on it, and you can buy that for, you know, 6, 7x. And like what 60-year-old wouldn't take a $200,000 check? Like, I mean, it's like, enjoy your retirement even more, you know? So those are the kind of deals that I think are most interesting. It's, it's the people that have a consistency and a history that aren't the next big thing, but were a, a big thing in the past, even if, even if it was brief. And I think at that point, you're also asking, like, what's your investment strategy here, your risk tolerance, your where you want to go in the value chain, right? It's like, I, I was talking to someone, I was at NFT NYC a couple of weeks ago, who's setting up a company to have allow people to invest. And I, I think it was like young athletes. I think it was golfers or tennis players, I'm trying to remember. So it's a sort of situation where, oh, they're trying to release NFTs that would allow people to like help them fund that young person's career, but you're making a bet on their success or, or not success in the longer term, just like with a young artist, right? So it's just like investing in, in private markets. It's basically venture capital in a way. I mean, you're going to make a lot of bets. Most of them aren't going to do well. Some of them will do tremendously well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of interesting elements here that I feel we're scratching the surface, but the alternative investment, you know, this, this broad term for anything, any of this cool stuff we're talking about can go layers and layers deeper across several verticals, across pretty much everything. Now, maybe this is a good time to dive deeper into the fund and how that came about, maybe your your strategy, what you're able to share. So, okay, so you and Wyatt, from the beginning thought, okay, at some point, we're going to start a fund here. Was there like a clear thesis in mind? Because again, like you mentioned that your media can cover everything per se, but your fund isn't necessarily going to invest in everything from Hot Wheels to Islamic Finance to our. So what's the sort of proposition for that? We surveyed our community and we're just like, look, we're creating this this vehicle for you. What would you like to see in it? And we basically gave, you know, so we didn't give them everything under the sun, right? We left out a lot of the stuff that just is impractical and this and that. But I think we gave, you know, 15 asset classes or so. And so through the surveys, we whittled that down to uh, allocation across seven. And so that's basically, you know, where we're at. Now, you could call it seven to nine, depending on where you draw the line. How we thought about this is like, okay, what are the markets that we know best? The ones where we have like a clear advantage. What are the markets that are going to produce stuff that is just clearly going to be more valuable in 10 years? It's a 10-year fund, right? So it's not like, this isn't about quick flips. This is about long-term blue chips, right? Sorry, can I just ask a question about that too? Because you mentioned like surveying the audience and stuff. Does that mean like your LPs were aiming to be almost exclusively like a large group from your readers? Or are you trying to find like more traditional LPs? Like how much of it was it sort of crowd influence? You know what I mean? Because it sounds like the survey was a part of that too. Yeah, absolutely. The Most of the LPs in the fund are community members that have been 
following us for a while. Absolutely. Yeah. Now we, we've marketed towards, you know, other new folks and brought new folks in and all that. But the thing is, this is our first fund. So like, you got to trust the fund manager and a company. And it's really tough to do that if you don't have a track record. So I mean, we had to, I mean, it was a logical choice to bring this to the community. I mean, they're the ones asking for it, you know, so basically, long story short, like it's definitely made up of community members. That's that's the whole idea. Absolutely. I think as time goes on, and as we show we have great returns, we know how to buy in these markets, we'll definitely be able to track more outside institutional investors and larger LPs. But for our first fund, we're just putting our money where our mouth is and saying like, look, we've been studying these markets, like we know these markets, we know what to buy, we know how to buy, like, and, uh, you know, our readers agree. And those are that's, um, those are the LPs now in the fund. Is there any more, and if you're able to share, like any more detail you can share on like maybe where those those asset types are that you're focusing on? Because I, I know um, alts, you know, which is not, not alts, but alt, they invested, I remember they bought like 51% of like a Steph Curry rookie card and they've been spread across different things like that. So from your, from your side, what's the equivalent of where you're doubling down if you're able to, you know, share it to whatever detail? We look up to all, we, we're partners with those guys. And I think they're investing in the, the markets they know best and the, the cards they know best and the opportunities they know best. Same thing for us. So the first thing we did was we went, we bought uh, a Darth Vader, sealed Darth Vader action figure from the 70s, like original, like in the packaging, like definitely like not something other funds buy. Like this is basically like no institutional capital buying this stuff, right? So we're, I don't know if you call us an institution, we're pretty small compared to most institutionals. But, you know, we're like basically the first one. The second thing we bought was a Daredevil comic book, highly graded Daredevil comic book number one, right? The first copy, first edition. The third thing we bought was the Beatles record. We bought a couple of other eclectic small things. This Sunday, we're about to announce we made our first artwork purchase. The ink is almost dry on this. I would love to talk about it on this podcast. We're like a day away from getting the final like check mark on that. So I can't yet. By this Sunday, we should be able to talk about it. I'm actually going to um, do a whole issue on it. But basically, we made our first artwork purchase. It's an artist who uh, was big in the uh, 70s, had a brief window of time, right? You hear that theme again, right? Look at the music rights. So she had a brief window of time in the 70s. She's fallen out of favor. But her style is such that many people reckon, smart people smarter than us, people that know art markets, and we, we consult with them, and they consult with us, rather, they're saying, you know, look, as she gets to the end of her life, like she's going to be highly regarded and she will date very well and it's pretty timeless. And I've taken a look at the artwork. I've studied up on her and I think it's exactly right. So we're really excited to be making these kind of blue chip art purchases as well. We have an allocation towards crypto and NFTs. What's funny is that the market was much different when we spun the fund up than it is now. <laughs> at the same time, we have been saving that allocation. We haven't gone in yet. It is very reasonable to think we will start dollar cost averaging our way into crypto. Again, I don't care if we hit rock bottom on this. I just know that we're buying stuff that's going to be valuable in 10 years. And for all the BS of Web3, and crypto and NFTs, there is no question it's not going away. It will absolutely still be around in 10 years. I mean, we're betting on it. Like, if we, <laughs> we could be wrong, you know, but I wouldn't bet against it. That's for sure. And yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, we have some small allocation towards sports cards, uh, memorabilia, music rights is going to be a tough one to fill, but that's going to be really exciting. But the ones that really excite me the most is like the cultural assets, right? I don't really know what else to call it stuff. It's just passion assets doesn't quite cover it, right? Passion assets is stuff that we all had passion for as kids and stuff. To me, cultural assets are like 
I want stuff that's going to be in a museum someday that should be in a museum. You know, I'm the kind of guy that like when I visit a new city, I want to go to the museum right away. That's the first thing I want to go. I love how museums differ from city to city. I love how each country and city has its own set of artifacts that go back thousands of years. Most cases, you know, a thousand years or so. But like what you find in a museum in Egypt is very different from what you find in a, a museum in Canada or Vienna or Australia or wherever it might be. And so I, I'm just, I'm obsessed with cultural assets. I love museums. And that is really the kind of stuff that we're going to be really excited to start to acquire. You, know, you could argue some of the stuff we've already bought, like could be in a museum someday, but I'm talking about really like cool ancient stuff, like old weapons, old Oh, just like body armor and stuff that is just, you can't make it. I mean, it's like, there's no replicating this stuff. Like it's, it's just, it's OG, man. It's as OG as it gets, you know, it's museum worthy. What else can you say? You know, that's amazing. I look forward to seeing what ends up happening with that fund. And as, as you expand to that stuff, the cultural assets is really interesting because when you first started saying that in my head, I was thinking like, Pretty much not everything, but a lot of things are cultural assets. You know, like the first Pokemon cards are cultural asset. The first Air Jordan breads are a cultural asset. That Darth Vader, I guess, I, uh, historical. I should, I should. That's really. You're right. It's a great point because culture is very modern, but historically cultural artifact. Right. That's exactly uh, the, the nuance there. Spot on. Because yeah, because I saw like I think it was on Rally Road. I saw. Well, I guess it's called Rally now. They people are bidding on like copies of. I don't know, like the Declaration of Independence or Dinosaur Bones. And I don't know like I, if I'd, I'd value all those things equally, in my opinion. But that now when you mention that, I'm like, okay, that kind of stuff is where my head goes when I think about historical stuff. So it's, it's funny you bring that up because like, so first of all, hats off to the rally team for paving the way on a lot of fractionalization of collectibles and uh, just a stellar, in my opinion, marketing team. I, I love the way they, they operate. I also think that they, they've been buying great assets, and I, I admire that a lot. I think, like the Declaration of Independence, and, and the you know we're very opinionated in a lot of this stuff. I have to say, like it's part of what people like read us for. So, like that Declaration of Independence, like it's funny because we're not always right, right? Like I'll, I'll be honest, like you can do the comp analysis on that Declaration of Independence. There's 26 copies. They sometimes sell at auction. There are appraisals and like, we actually, it's not like, oh, it's worth a billion dollars. It's like, no, like it's, it's like anything else. It has a value based on what the market will bear. We looked at the comps on that declaration and decided not to buy. And uh, boy, were we wrong. <laughs> that value has gone up quite a bit. And so, you know, I think it's okay to admit that stuff because it's like, you know, we're not always right. Like we don't always make the right call. We're right more often than we're wrong for sure, you know, but we've learned from that. Other stuff like, you know, like dinosaur bones and stuff like that. It's fascinating that, that they've brought that stuff to market because it made us realize like there actually is a market for dinosaur bones. And like you actually can like judge and value this stuff to the best of your ability, right? Like you learn like, okay, well, how much of these bones are remanufactured and like looked made to look like the whole skeleton versus like the actual bone? Just stuff you wouldn't think about. Like no normal person just wouldn't think about, but that's what collectors look for. That's what museums look for. And so you can come up with the value. And so that's kind of part of our appeal, right? It's like, yeah, investing in a dinosaur is awesome. But like, how do you actually know if it's a good deal? Because like, at the end of the day, like, it is about money. Like, and I know it's hard for people to see that. I think it's easier for them to see it now because everything's down. And they're like, oh, wait, this isn't just like monopoly money. And like, you know, but you know, in the long run, I'm bullish on all this stuff. Don't get me wrong. 
But you know, that some deals are better than others, and we, you know, we're not perfect. We don't get it right every time. But I like to think that yes, we absolutely are developed a skill in finding the good deals. Yeah. And I think as the definition of what these alternative assets and collectibles seems to expand, or at least open our eyes to what it could mean, you provide a great service, help people understand, okay, this is a great investment. This is not, here's the things you should consider, make a recommendation there. Now, I would, of course, with what we do at New Street, focusing at this stage, primarily on sneakers, trading cards, NFTs, I feel like each of those topics we could probably go down five-hour conversations on, but maybe just at a high level, like what's your take on those three categories, sneakers, cards, NFTs? And then after that, I'll ask you like about other areas you're most interested in. Okay, sneakers is not one I particularly care too much about. I, I think it's interesting. I love that people are into them. It's just not something I'm interested in that much. I, you can only spread yourself so thin. I kind of dial back a bit on sneakers. So I'll just be honest. You know, I think it's fascinating. I love how sneakers have become artwork in many ways, right? I think there's a good amount of hype, but it's also, there's a lot of people into kicks, you know? We are in contact with, we actually have an allocation towards, a small allocation towards sneakers in the Alts One Fund. Yeah, so, you know, we're not, you know, I may not be my favorite, but it's definitely one that we know is worth, going to be worth more in 10 years if you play your cards right. I think uh, you want to spread your risk there. I don't think you want to buy specific pairs as much as you want to kind of spread your risk there. So that's what I have to say about sneakers. Cards, I believe you said next, sports cards. So what's funny about like sports cards to me is like everyone was into sports cards as a kid, right? Like, you know, trading baseball cards as a kid, right? And then like most of us kind of like got away from it. And then like in recent years, like a lot of people have gone back. And with that market, you've got a big, huge amount of old school like collectors that never left right? And they're sitting on cloud nine all of a sudden because everyone else is like caught up and the market is way more liquid than it's ever been before. And like there's records being broken all the time. Now the market's down now, so it's getting back to reality. But for a few years there, I mean, it was out of control. I still think it's got a ways to go. I think then this, I mean, they call it the hobby for a reason, right? Like of all the hobbies a person could possibly have, like it's called like the hobby. Like that's pretty bold, but that also speaks to how many people are into it, right? So yeah, I'm definitely like right now the market's down. I think it got ahead of itself, absolutely. But at the same time, like I wouldn't bet against it in the long term. I love that market. And I, you know, as a sports fan, you know, I think it's great as well. And then the last one, NFTs, man. All right. So <laughs> I think all fundamentally life-changing, world-changing technologies they often start very gimmicky. They often start like a game or like a fad or like, like you even look at the internet when it was first born. And like, I remember not to date myself, but I definitely remember. Right. And like people didn't really get it. People like just their minds, they couldn't conceive of what it could be. Now I do feel that's similar with NFTs. The problem is I think there's a, a lot to be said about the lack of use cases here. I think that the hype right now is way beyond the actual use cases. Now, I think that there are use cases. Again, I think music presents a great opportunity. There's probably stuff I don't even think about, right? And I think about the stuff a lot. But I do feel like there's just this expectation that NFTs are just going to be like, the way like commerce is transacted online and all tickets are going to be NFTs. And you got like Gary V spouting off with like ridiculous tweets about like 
tickets, uh, airline tickets are going to be sold in the future to other people. I'm like, what do you smoke? Like, how do you like this all speculation? Like, look, I don't think anyone knows how any of this stuff will unfold for sure. I do think 99% of it is going to go to zero. Most of it's already on its way right now. I mean, let's not kid ourselves, but that's okay because all it takes is that 1%, that one use case and they are definitely forming and it'll take time. And it'll take a lot. There's a big adoption curve here, guys. And like, we can't just sweep that under the rug as like, oh, it's just UX. No, it's a lot deeper than that. Most people don't care. Ask people on the street. Ask people who aren't mired in this stuff on a day-to-day basis. Their eyes will glaze over if you try to explain Web3. That didn't happen with the internet. Okay, let's not kid ourselves. When the internet first came out, people were skeptical, but they also weren't dumb. They basically got it. They understood what I game changer it was and i don't get the same vibe from web3 i think it'll come i think people have to be patient i don't like the overhype i'm glad we're in a recession right now in in nfts because to your point earlier it separates the wheat from the shaft it gets a lot of the junk out of the system and i think the important stuff rises to the top over time so long term yeah i am bullish on it we haven't made any moves with the l1 fund and nfts I would absolutely not be against doing that. It is still a falling knife, in my opinion, as of this recording. But I think that uh, in the long term, they, it definitely doesn't go away. I think it has legs. And I'm excited to see what happens with, with NFTs. I really am. Yeah, same here, of course. And love to hear your opinion on all this stuff. Thanks for sharing that. I'm thinking out of things that we haven't covered, perhaps, across the alternative asset space, whether it's a particular category or idea, what are you most excited about that we haven't like covered so far in this conversation that maybe you want to bring up? We touched on music rights. I can't speak highly enough of how interesting that asset class is. The difference between the number of people interested in investing in music rights and the actual people on the ground that know what they're talking about, know what they're doing, have done it before, is staggering. I mean, there's a lot of interest in sports cards and memorabilia. There's also millions of people investing in but there's a lot of people interested in music rights, and I can count on one hand the number of people I know personally who have bought catalogs of music rights catalogs. And I talk to a lot of people in this space. It is not easy to understand. It's difficult. It's very uh, – you need a lawyer to like understand the, how the contracts work. But that doesn't mean it's not a great opportunity. It's a terrific opportunity. So I think that is the one that I'm personally most excited about. Again, I am a little biased. I, I do love music. Nothing would make me happier than like buying some random like one-hit wonder from the 80s someday. Like I think that would be terrific. I actually saw on Royalty Exchange a couple of, oh, about a year ago, I've had the time of my life. Like what's that song from Dirty Dancing? Um, yeah. I don't know. It's like an 80s like banger. Like it was like this eighties like banger. You've heard the song, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everyone's heard the song, like exactly. That's it. That's it. But like that song to me is just like that's like timeless. Like that's never not gonna be like a song that gets just played on like movies and like or just on eighties playlists on Spotify. Like it has staying power. And so that song was for sale for like half a million dollars, and I was like, and it earns like. 40, 50 grand a year. And it was on sale for like half a million bucks. So like for 10X, basically 11X, 12X, I think you could buy the rights to that song. Now, I don't know if that's a wise decision. I haven't dug into it to the degree that I need to, to make it to buy it, but someone bought that. And like, 
that's they could have bought a house. They could have bought stocks. They could have bought anything. And I just I love that that happens now. I love that that's like a thing. And this isn't hypnosis that's buying it, right? This isn't like big funds. These are like small investors, small institutional investors. And there's there's so much opportunity out there. It's an absolutely fascinating world to me, and I uh, I really look forward to continuing to study it. Next time, call me if you see that song up for sale. We should let's let's work together. Let's make it <laughs> we'll make go in, man, together. Let's do it. I love it. <laughs> let's make a list of our favorite songs we think are underrated from like back in the day. No, but thanks so much, Stefan. Uh, I've got two questions that I I close every podcast with. The first being, where can people find you? You know, socials, website, etc. And second being, what's one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? Finding us is easy, alts.co, alts.co. Look, just come to the site, browse around. If you like what you see, just sign up for the newsletter. That's the beginning to everything. So we're, you know, that's the entry point into our world. So sign up, set your preferences, let us know what asset classes you're interested in. We'll send you content just on that and a little bit of extra fun stuff when we see it. So that's the easy one. In terms of advice, I have like super imposter syndrome and I, I don't like think I'm qualified to give anyone advice at all. I will say that one thing that I do feel strongly about is if you have like an idea, just start now, just do it now. Like there's a million reasons to delay and like not just start whatever it is, writing, acting, shooting TikTok videos, like making a real effort to be consistent about a hobby, right? Like if you really love doing something, like just start doing it. Like there's, it'll never get easier it will never get easier than, than this, this moment. And so I don't really know if that's advice or just my experience, but it's definitely something that um, I think it's a little bit of wisdom right there. Well, thank you so much, Stefan. I think we'll have to have you on again soon. Keep chatting. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been awesome, man. Let's do this again sometime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to New Street X. You can learn more about Stefan and Alts in the show notes. Learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Make sure to subscribe and give us a five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.